Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host, Hall of Famer and star of this show, Jim Cott. And this is Cott's Corner, episode 220. We're a day removed from Independence Day, 4th of July, and we uh, we didn't take much of uh, much of a break here to get back going. A lot of uh, interest from our audience as to what Jim's seeing out there, and can't wait to get back at it here. Jim, welcome back to your show. Thank you very much. Yeah, it seems it's been quite a while. Yeah, we took a little bit of a break. I think um, I had a couple of events I was traveling to, and it it uh, we j- just just didn't work out. Almost two weeks, I think, since since yeah. we, we text, but uh, kind of missed our interaction here on the on the on the air. So I feel an equilibrium coming back over my my body and soul right now because we're <laughs> back. <laughs> so, but um, how was your Fourth of July? Quiet, uh, and actually in Vermont, rainy. Yeah, it's. Uh... A lot of kids' activities out here at the golf uh, club, which is nice. Uh, you know, our own drive, chip, and putt. But uh, we've got a lot of rain in Vermont, which unfortunately for the weekenders that come up, celebrate the holiday, uh, it was not good. But uh, we enjoy it nevertheless. Yeah. I think I think the whole country got rained on yesterday. I saw complaints all over social media about no fireworks because of the thunderstorms. But um you know, it's just like they say in baseball, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes it rains. So right. we, uh, right. we all survived. We got into a spirited monopoly battle yesterday. My kids had never played before and they caught on real quickly. And I saw a side of them that just scared the heck out of me. So uh, <laughs> I'm hope, hoping we don't have to get closed in like that again. But we're, we're approaching 20,000 subscribers now. We're, we're about 15 away uh, from that. So I want to thank our audience and support system out there, 72 countries supporting us on a regular basis, you know, grassroots kids all the way to MLB front offices, and just encourage you to continue to, to follow protocol, download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. We can keep giving you great content every week like we do on Cots Corner. And uh, yeah, we, we uh, a couple well, a couple weeks back when we, we got going on, on our, uh, we, we get rolling sometimes, and we forgot to Welcome, uh, a, a young, nice young rookie with the Reds. The Reds are playing great baseball right now um, to the to the major leagues. I want to give you an opportunity to do that with Ellie De La Cruz. Yeah, he has been something. I mean, 6'5", he can fly. I think yesterday he got four or five hits again. So, uh, And he's, you know, added to that Cincinnati club that has already begun to, you know, play, I think, a lot better than most of us thought they would. And uh, they're leading the division and – Joey Votto is back in the lineup again, so they've got a lot of positives going for him. But this kid is really exciting. Uh, you know, we we thought years ago most of the players that came out of, say, Cuba, a lot of the Latin American countries, uh, Japanese, they were smaller than the American players. But now you got Shoei Otani at, what, 6'4", 230. De La Cruz is 6'5". So uh, I don't know if it's improved diet or what it is, but we're getting some real physical specimens out of those uh, countries that we didn't have before. Yeah, and these aren't corner outfielders you're talking about. Like De La Cruz, he's a, he was projected as a shortstop. He's playing third base for the Reds right now. Uh, they, you know, they say to preserve his body. I, I don't know how that uh, does that. He's, still, he's actually closer to the baseball now at that hot corner, strong chest, strong arm. But what, um, you know, just uh, on a, he's a switch hitter also, which, you know, which makes it more, even more intriguing, but what, what makes him from your eye, what makes him such a, an immediate impact right now? Well, I think it's the speed and, uh, for his size, he's got that exceptional speed and I've watched a few of his, um, I lost, I watched a few of his swings and I think. I go back to my uh, friend, Tony Oliva, uh, Hall of Famer, and Rod Carew, uh, who, who was born in Panama. But when they, when they play baseball in these Latin American countries, they see a lot of different pitches. You know, they're not a lot of 98-mile-an-hour uh, fastballs there. They're pitchers. So they learn to hit off-speed pitches. They learn to use the whole field uh, and, I think, and make more contact. And I think that's what's impressive about him is for a big guy uh he's got enough power he makes contact he's got speed so he, he right now he's the whole package yeah and he um on an earlier show today we had stan meek on longtime scout and he talked about the five tools and he said really when he 
when he would watch guys like he he saw JT Real Muto um, as a high school kid, as a high school quarterback, believe it or not. And he said he he felt he had that 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 sixth tool, that presence about him that um, that failure wasn't going to bother him. It wasn't going to stop him from moving forward. Do, do you sense again? You haven't met the young man, but from watching the way he performs in the biggest stage right now, do you sense he's he's a kid that may have that sixth tool? Well, he's certainly shown that because you know sometimes uh, I can remember uh, Hall of Famer's name Andre Dawson. I remember when Andre came up with the Expos and and he was off to a really slow start. Jim Fanning kept allowing him to hit pressure situations. And some of our guys in the Philly said, boy, that's pretty tough on this kid, letting him hit in in those situations. And I said, well, the reason he's doing that, I think, is he knows he's going to be a star and he doesn't want to, you know, destroy his confidence by pinch hitting for him. Well, De La Cruz has come up and it's like, I belong here. And he's started to take off and play without any sort of growing into the big leagues. He's already kind of playing like a seasoned big leaguer after just a couple of weeks uh, in the league. Yeah. I've enjoyed watching him play. There's, you know, I, there's a young man out in Pittsburgh. I think uh, pirates thought he may develop or eventually will O'Neill Cruz same ending. Yeah. He's six, seven. He's still on the injured list, I believe. Yeah. Yep. With all those moving parts, sometimes it, it's tough to be mechanically sound like uh, Ellie is, which is, it's, it's great to watch. I like how he swings well, both ways. Uh, yeah. Phenomenal. Um, enjoy watching play. And then the Reds also have the, you know, the former rookie of the year, I believe Jonathan India had a tough sophomore year last year, but it looks like he's back on track, the second baseman for them as well. So it'd be nice to see the Reds good again. Yeah. It's such a great baseball city. And, you know, I go back to when we played against the Reds when I was first in the national league and uh, in the seventies and then coaching there in the eighties, you know, and they, it was tradition for Cincinnati to always open the season a day of every uh, every other team. Uh, they had a downtown parade. It was such a great tradition, and they don't do that quite uh, to that degree anymore. But but it is a great baseball city, and I notice that their attendance is beginning to pick up. Yeah, that was actually one of my coaching stops, University of Cincinnati, and I remember. When we used to get together with the boosters, they would take us on the Ohio River and they'd have that opening in center field and they would just stop there and we could see the game. Um, that was at the end of Griffey's career. So that was uh, fun to see him sure. through there as well. Well, there, there's, uh, you know, we talked about the young man, not that he's an old man, but Carlos Correa seems to be a veteran. Um, he's made some adjustments that you've, you've had a chance to watch. Uh, you know, he said some Great, you know, great run with Astros. He thought he was going to hit the big money this year, although for us, that's big money um, that he got this year. But um, what what kind of adjustments have you seen him make? Um, and what kind of well, you know, I, I was really disappointed, uh, not only in the way he played and and the fact that he was striking out so often, but but when he did get an occasional hit, you know, it was like an over the top celebration, and uh, that just didn't fit in with an organization that had. Uh, such a professional like Harmon Killebrew is the face of their franchise. I know that it's different times, but now he he is seeing in, in Houston, he had Springer, Altuve, Bregman. He had a supporting cast. And now when he was hitting third or fourth for the Twins, you could tell by his swing, he was trying to lift every ball out of the ballpark. So Rocco Baldelli had this meeting, I think about four or five days ago, kind of a reset. And he changed the lineup, and he put Correa in the leadoff spot. And now the other day he went four for five. He got a couple knocks yesterday, and by his own admission, he has said that I now have a better two-strike approach. I'm using the whole field. I'm not trying to hit every ball out of the ballpark. So I think maybe the the Twins in that putting him in that position will get some value out of him because they, for thirty-five million dollars a year. Yeah, I know they expected a lot more production than what they were getting the first two months. Yeah, I would say so. And you you often talk about those subtle adjustments that either teammates can give to you or a coach can give to you. And it sounds like Baldelli's grown into that role as skipper with the Twins, bringing in a veteran, a high-priced veteran to to make some suggestions. I know you weren't in on the meeting, but what, what do you presume took place there? What 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 kind of... Uh, what's the space between the notes with a conversation like that? 
Yeah, I, I thought, well, first of all, I think I think Rocco got a little, uh, you know, emotional in terms of his criticism. I wasn't in the meeting, but I think he finally has had enough of the way the guys have been playing. So I think sometimes that's just a wake-up call. And, of course, you know, us old-school people, after those meetings, we just say, well, yeah, but the most important thing about those meetings is who's today's starting pitcher. You know, that'll that'll tell you if you're you're going to turn it around and win. And now uh, their starting pitching has been terrific lately. Uh, Joe Ryan's had a couple of hiccups, but he's been great. Sonny Gray's going to the All-Star game. He, If you look at his record, you'll say, why Sonny Gray's 4-2? and two? He has had 11 no decisions, and he's left like eight games with the lead. And the Twins' bullpen, which you could rubber stamp almost every team in baseball, if you don't have – a consistent, productive bullpen those last three innings, you, you just don't – you're not winning games. I mean, I don't care. I've seen it happen to Max Scherzer, Verlander, seven great innings, pitch count comes up, they take them out, and the bullpen implodes. Uh, and so the Twins have you, – you send out – Kenta Maeda now is, is back uh, active and pitched a good game. Bailey Ober is a fine young right-hander. So they've got great starting pitching. If they uh, – if they get the bullpen to pitch the way they're capable of, and now that they got the lineup organized uh, a little bit better, uh, I can see Cleveland giving them a little run, but the Twins really should win that division. Yeah. I, you know, with the move with Correa, was, it's unconventional, but you can see the results already, and sometimes you just need a different view on the world. But Sonny Gray, people forget that he was one of the top pitchers in baseball when he was with Oakland. And then moved to the Yankees, which sometimes overwhelms people, um, and or a new coaching staff, which tries to get you to prioritize maybe not your best pitches and changes who you are, what they like. Then I think he went with the Reds and really seems like he's finding himself with the Twins. What, what do you attribute that to? I think it's the atmosphere there. I think, uh, you know, high expectations in New York and in uh, in Cincinnati. But I think with Maeda there, Joe Ryan being a uh, a young potential all-star. I think that uh, Sonny probably was a little more relaxed pitcher there. There's certainly not as much pressure from the media or the fans. And uh, that's been the case, as you mentioned, with a lot of players that had difficulty performing in uh, New York. But, you know, Carl Pavano had a tough time with the Yankees. All of a sudden he goes to Minnesota and turned into an all-star. So the environment you're in uh, can have a lot to do with your performance. Did that ever happen to you over your career where just a change of scenery, n- nothing negative about the one before, but maybe uh, a different connection, uh, a different atmosphere, different environment caused a... Yeah, well, it was it was two ways. First of all, when uh, I was coming back from a, a wrist injury with the Twins where I had broken my wrist, I wasn't pitching very well in 73, but my arm was beginning to come back. And I knew they had me on waivers. And uh, so when I went to Chicago, got together with Johnny Sane, I mean, uh, they made me feel like uh, I was the best pitcher in the league. You know, and all of a sudden I have two 20-game seasons. And then the flip side of that is uh, they, the owner, Mr. Allen, was losing a lot of money. And Roland Heeman, the GM, came to me and said, we really think we can get some young players for you in the offseason there's three teams that would like a veteran pitcher uh the phillies the pirates and the mets and if we could work it out where would you like to go and i said i'd love to go to the phillies you know i was a philadelphia ace fan as a kid my dad was and and they had an up-and-coming good team so i did go to the phillies but chuck tanner had told him told danny ozark the manager you got to pitch him every four days you got to pitch him more often than than um, you pitch most guys because I, I came off a 300-inning season and I depended on, on control. And Danny didn't just really buy into that. If there was a lineup with uh, a lot of right-hand hitters, he might skip me a turn. So I never really got into a good rhythm there. And uh, then he used me as a pinch runner one time and slid into base and cracked my kneecap. So Personally, things kind of went downhill for me there, but actually they're going to honor me here in a month. They weren't able to do it last year, so they're going to honor me for my Hall of Fame induction. And uh, those were, you know, I had a great time there, great teammates, and ability-wise, probably 
the best uh, physically talented teams that I was on with Mike Schmidt and uh, Steve Carlton, Gary Maddox, Greg Lazinski. But there again, that environment for environment for me personally was not as good as being in Chicago. Yeah, no, it's and I'm I'm glad they're they're recognizing you. I think that that'll be a fun time for you. Do you know when it is yet, or is it still August 11? That whole weekend, they're going to put our former owner, uh, Ruley Carpenter. They're going to put him on the Phillies Wall of Fame, and then on Sunday they're honoring the 1983 World Series team because that is their, what would that be, their 40th, yeah, 40th anniversary of the 83 World Series team that lost to the Orioles. So I'll see still a lot of my teammates from those uh, 70s when I was there. Mike Schmidt, I'm sure Gary Maddox will be there, Larry Boa, uh, Greg Lazinski, Steve Carlton. So it'll it'll be a fun weekend. Yeah, Baltimore, that was uh, Cal Ripken's first season, I believe. Right. He, uh, and you mentioned you mentioned Sonny Gray with uh, ten no decisions. He, I just I watched him pitch Sunday against uh, Baltimore, and six scoreless innings, seven strikeouts, uh, didn't waste pitches, uh, just worked quickly. And uh, he's not a big guy. He's not no. a he's not an imposing guy, but he uh, and I, I, he doesn't strike me as a guy that goes out there trying to miss bats like the conventional. Even though he did strike out seven seven hitters, but he. He almost encourages contact, like the almost like, and I don't want to compare him to Greg Maddox. I wouldn't do that. It's sacrilegious, but um, almost in that regard, where he's up there just trying to get people to be off balance, miss a little bit. He's refreshing to watch. Yeah, and he, he's got an excellent curveball. I think that was kind of his signature pitch when he came up. Yeah. Now, um, you, you're you're talking a little bit about the Correa and the Twins and being honored by organization. You you currently had a, a little shift in role with with the twins i think you're a great resource to have gosh have back we've talked quite a bit about i know i'm not in charge of any organization but if i would i couldn't imagine sticking you in front of everybody i could to just have them ask you questions nonstop. and if they got tired i'd throw somebody else in front of you just to <laughs> a knowledge to to get out there but uh to, if, if you don't mind sharing uh you, you know what, what was your role what's the the, the shift in the role and what maybe why well it's 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 more a shift in my uh, I don't know if I'd say my attitude, but my title is special assistant to the president, who is Dave St. Peter. And I kiddingly tell my friends when they ask what I do, and they said, well, when the president needs assisting, I assist. And uh, my recent trip there, I spoke to uh, a businessman's breakfast. Uh, then I went out in the balcony, uh, left field stands, and I schmoozed with the fans the first three innings there and talked to a little baseball but I, I've come to realize, and I was telling Tony and Rod Carew and Paul Molitor this, we have to realize that from a baseball player standpoint, we have no input. Uh, they don't ask us how we did things. They don't care how we did things. They don't know if we did things. So I have come to the conclusion, and I've told Dave, the president of that, and he understands, I just don't want to beat my head against a wall thinking that I see something going on with, say, Joe Ryan or anybody. I think I could really help them. Well, I, I just got to turn the other way because they have their own program. They're more into the science of it. And uh, uh, the, the example I use, and I think I mentioned this to you before, the statistical people, they have information. They have knowledge. So they'll have all this, compile all the data and say, now this is the way that you should pitch Willie Mays if Willie Mays were playing. But here's Robin Roberts, a Hall of Fame pitcher. And when they asked Robbie, how do you pitch Willie Mays? He says, tell me the score, the inning, and the count. So if it's eight to nothing in the seventh, you're going to pitch him differently. If it's a 1-1 game in the sixth and a runner and winning run on second and the count is 2-0, and so everything it revolves around the count and the score. And today's statistical departments, they don't look at it that way. They don't customize it. They just have the data out there that says this is the way, you know, they don't know how you feel today. They don't now know if the guy uh, that you're facing is coming off a 10-game hitting streak. He's on fire like Dale Murphy with the Braves. 
if he was in a hot streak, you might as well walk him. And then if you follow the box scores and he's 0 for four games, why well, you just go right at him because he was such a streaky hitter. And that's the kind of stuff that those of us with experience, you know, there's, uh, there's power in direct experience, but there's such a divide between those of us that played and today uh, where they, you know, it, it goes right on down the line. I talked to Keith Hernandez with the Mets, uh, you know, with Cal Ripken, with any of the Hall of Famers, Fergie Jenkins. Uh, they don't add, they, they have no desire to ask uh, what kind of advice we might have. Uh, maybe to get this guy out of a slump or something. So I've just come to the conclusion I'm there as an ambassador and uh, I'm there for the, we have great fans that remember our teams of the sixties and it's fun interacting with them. And, and uh, I'm active trying to uh, raise funds with the twins community fund. So that's my role now. And I just, I don't think I'll really, I don't think I'll ever go in the clubhouse again. I know Joe Ryan, who Joe and I text, and we'll see each other on the field, uh, as I will Byron Buxton, Kyle Farmer. But I just I want to stay out of that clubhouse because it's no fun walking in a major league clubhouse with an organization that you were, you know, one of their players whose numbers retired, and you feel like a stranger. So I, I don't want that feeling anymore. So I just stay out. It sounds like this, this was your decision that you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No question. No question. Yeah. Is now, and, and this, again, this may be an unfair question, but is, um, has it, have other players told you that this divide has been spoken about? Is it, is it intentional or is it, now either way it doesn't matter, or is it ignorance and knowing that they just don't know, they don't get that they don't get it in terms of either the players or the middle management that's, you know, buffering the abilities for somebody to gain the knowledge that you have. It's intentional. I think it's, it's probably, you could compare it to the great political divide we have in our country. You know, we're so polarized and it's not like if, like when I first heard about the twins uh, analytics department, I said to Derek Falvey, the, the, um, the head of baseball ops, when I was in spring training, I said, I'd like to meet your analytics guys. I want to find out what they do. Uh, you know, some of the players don't even want to, former players don't even want to know. They just start trashing, you know, the, the nerds are in charge. So, you know, I had fun one day. I said to these three young men sitting in the press box in Fort Myers, had their computers. And I said, now I heard if you put the first strike in play, the league average is 340. And so they're going around their keys. They said, yeah, that's right. I said, you know, as a pitcher, I said, that's pretty good. That'll lead the league. But as a pitcher, that tells me if I kept throwing strikes to the first five hitters, strike one, strike one, and they put them all in play, the out percentage is 660. Because if 340 is the batting average, 660 is the out percentage. So I throw three strikes, first three hitters, they put the first pitch in play, Big deal, they got one hit, but I got two outs. So they, I look at things a little differently like that. And uh, it's not that I didn't want to find out how they do, but they, they, I have never had anybody come up and, and say, go, I have to go back to my Andy Pettit, David Cohn days in, uh, in New York, but come up to me or get me in a corner and say, uh, well, you know, in these situations, what did you think about this or that? The guy that really picked my brain the most in spring training last year was Kenta Maeda's interpreter. I remember, yeah. Yeah. And I, I told him, I said, this is interesting. I said, you're eager to find out. Well, how'd you condition your harm? What'd you do in spring training? All that kind of stuff. And he's the only guy that ever, you know, and now I see him just killing pitchers in terms of, you know, dumbing down, they have every day, you'll see a box score where such and such a pitcher, like you mentioned, Sonny Gray, six innings, no runs, take them out of the game, game blows up. And so they all fall into that pitch count trap. They think they're preserving arms. 
uh, well, now this young Dustin May with the Dodgers, he's going to undergo a second Tommy John. Yeah. And I just texted Tommy, actually talked to Tommy last week. No pitcher have ever, have ever asked Tommy how he rehabbed from the surgery that's named for him. Ironic. And so you have more and more injuries. And what they don't understand is by not allowing the pitchers to pitch deeper, uh, they're never getting their legs underneath them to pitch nine innings. I mean, I think I've used the analogy with you. And I told Joe Ryan, I said, Joe, you're a thoroughbred, man. You're a Kentucky Derby horse. But if they keep running you three quarters of a mile, you're never going to run the quarter of a mile to win the Kentucky Derby. So you you have to pitch more innings to strengthen your legs because your your lower body, you look at every successful pitcher, I'd say a high percentage of them, they had big glutes, thighs, quadriceps. You know, it was their legs that enabled to support the motion to take a lot of the pressure off the arm. They didn't have as many arm injuries like Nolan Ryan. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the adage, you know, you don't rise to the level of your expectations. You fall to the level of your training and they're conditioning, not just physically, but mentally, these guys to almost create their own barriers for pitching. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I I got a text the other day from my friend John Stuper, who coached at Yale for many years and it drives him nuts. And he, I forget the name of the pitcher, but he said, you know, I was really disappointed I had to come out after four because I wanted to be able to get five and know that I've done my job. And we're thinking, really? It's a nine-inning game. Why do you think as a starting pitcher you've done your job if you only pitch five? Yeah, they lowered the bar. They, As you said, they dumb it down. Yeah. Without question. Now, the conversation you had with the analytics guy, um, th- this is a point that I've, I've been making, and, and maybe this will spark if there's analytics people listening. Um, maybe they can jump on this, but they presented you with a number. And in their mind, that was an absolute number. Uh, 340 was, you know, the – you know, that was their, their God, so to speak. And then you presented the counter argument to say, well, I agree with you. That's, that's a fantastic average. However, you know, this is what's remaining and this is how it benefits me as a pitcher. That's what analytics was supposed to be about when it started. It was supposed to be about conversation. It's English. It's not yeah. math. And whether you did it knowingly or unknowingly, that's your nature to, you know, to, to have dialogue. Those are the types of conversations that have to happen regularly for something like analytics to, um, I guess, for the world to have a paradigm shift on it and for it to find a new role like Carlos Correa did, where, you know, it it has a new home, I think, used properly as conversation. But it can't happen in a silo. It can't happen with just the numbers, guys. It has to involve people with a vast amount of experience like yourself because you give it a context, you give it a heartbeat, and that's what it needs. Yeah, the, boy, the, you know, the thing we laugh at the most we being our the old fossils and uh, uh, the Wake Forest at the College World yeah. Series, the Wake Forest well, the pitching analytics <laughs> kid that was charge of it was, uh, this is a post that Mark Wicker had who wrote for the Orange County Papers for years. And he was saying how excited he was because he did all this studying and if they take more pitches and they're driving the pitch count out and they're getting the other team's best pitchers out, well, all of a sudden they're, you know, they they are, ability to score runs increased. And I thought, you know, if you had Kirby Puckett on your team and you told him to take a bunch of pitches and drive the pitcher's pitch count up, he probably hit 210 instead of leading the league and hitting. He wasn't that type of hitter. So my answer to that was, to me, really, there's only one statistic that's important. And that is uh, if you get 27 outs, and at the end of the game, in the 27th out in a normal game, and your team has one more run than the other team, your winning percentage is 100%. And I don't care how you get that. You can bunt them over. You can hit and run. I mean, our goal was always to score four. Most games, the winning team scores four or more, the losing team three fewer than three. So that's been the game. I mean, it might have been it might be increased a little bit these days to five and four, but that was the goal, you know, to get uh, like Johnny Sane asked me uh, when he took over as my pitching coach uh, in the '60s. He said, "Now, if you give up uh, one run a game, 
what do you think your chances of winning? I said, really good. I'm going to win 90% of those. Well, what, a, what about two runs? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to win a high percentage of two runs. What if you give up three runs? Uh, borderline. What if you give up four? No. So that, that is the line of demarcation. Hold the opposition to three or less, three or fewer, and score four or more. And I don't care how you do it. But the analytics guys feel like the best way to do it is just swing as hard as you can because you have a better chance of running into a Justin Verlander fastball and uh, hitting a home run than you do by putting three singles together. Yeah. Uh, well, I think if uh, if they started changing their philosophy and swinging the way they swing, they might find that they would be able to put three singles together and maybe mix in a stolen base, which is way up now, a stolen base and a bunt, and they'll produce runs that way instead of hoping that they run into one fastball. Yeah. Well, if the if the current players aren't going to ask you a question about baseball, you know I ask at least one selfish question, probably more per episode that we have. So I'm going to corner you now on a question um, that I, I, I want to know the answer to. We um I we had, I had Bob Schaefer on a couple of days ago. He does a podcast for us and uh, does a great job called Touch Them All. Just we do. Uh, he's the current special assistant uh, to the GM for the Nationals, and he is a uh, a disciple of George Kissel. Uh, and so the question that that he and I were going back and forth on that that we both saw a lot in Major League Baseball, runner on second base, and watching the infielders be so out of sync and jabbing at second when the pitcher's pitching or totally disregarding the runner and just that, that, that communication not happening, whether it's verbal, physical, or it's just kind of a, they have a feel when you were on the mound, what rules did you have with a guy in second? Cause I'm seeing, I'm seeing guys getting huge secondary leads, huge, huge problems at the major league level right now. What were some rules that you had with, with your middle infield when there was a guy in second when you were on the mound trying to hold it? Well, I, I think, first of all, you have to know who your runner is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is he really a threat to steal third? And then if I could peek at him out of my – I'm left-handed, so I would – if I could peek at him out of the corner of my left eye, if I could see with a normal position, if, say, Larry Bow was at shortstop, if that runner – got past where I could see Larry out of the corner of my eye, he had too big a lead. Uh, and then usually I would step off. And then, as you said, the main thing was I, I never wanted to get caught where you're looking in the shortstop, all of a sudden runs over towards second base, and then you make the pitch, and the ground ball goes through the hole for a base hit. So there's that coordination there. Uh, but I, I just, you know, mainly when you look at, uh, the other team's roster, uh, you know, who's capable of doing it. Now, strange thing is that uh, Johnny Bench one year, I think, stole third base almost 10 times because when he got on second, nobody expected him to steal. Tony Perez was probably up next, so the infield's playing deep. So he would get a gigantic lead and had the instincts enough to take off and steal third easily. So I don't know if there's a set of rules. If Campy Campanaris was on second, obviously I'm going to pay attention to him. But the other thing with a man on second or a man on any base is, and A.D. Lopat, uh, one of my first pitching coaches, taught me that. He said, no matter how many looks you take at that runner or how, uh, you know, how much attention you give to that runner, you have to transfer 100% of your attention to the hitter. You can't be thinking or looking at the runner on first and start your motion and then head the ball toward home. It's probably not going to be where you want to throw it, and you're not going to throw it with the same conviction. So my theory was I'd come to a set. I feel comfortable. The, the guy doesn't have a big enough lead. Boom, I'm going home. If there was any doubt in my mind, I'd step off the mound. Yeah. One of the things that always bothered me as a base runner, and you can't do it a lot as a pitcher because after a while you'll, you know, you, you jump on it. But I was, and I guess you do the same thing with a runner you do with a batter. You want to keep them off balance. I didn't like it when a pitcher didn't look at me and went to the went to the batter quick uh, because 
I couldn't get any type of timing. I couldn't get any type of rhythm moving in the direction I wanted to go from second to third. And I couldn't do it every time because eventually you take advantage of it. But if they mix that in every now and then, that bothered me. Not just as a runner, it actually bothered me as a hitter too. I didn't like that when they worked quick like that. Yeah, Which I think that's why working uh, at a quick pace is helpful. But I, right along with what you've said, I always tried to – when I came up, Louis Aparicio and then along came Campaneris, uh, there was not a lot of speed in the game uh, like there is today. And uh, so you knew your guys that might try to steal. And, and ones, I mean, I see guys throwing over to first base with a guy that hadn't had a stolen base in three years. That's just a waste of time. But I just wanted to make sure that I might come set 1,001, go. I might come set and hold it 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, go. I wanted to vary my count. So as you know from being a base runner, if you can – find out what that pitcher's rhythm in is you can kind of guess with when he's going to start his motion and deliver to home. Of course, I also began to use the slide step where you didn't really pick your front leg up as high. And I was able to deliver the ball to home plate in actually less than a second. Well, what you just said, and we'll move on after, after this, but what you just said is the exact reason why I thought with the rise of analytics, it would be much easier for base runners to become base stealers because everything's so cookie cutter and you could predict more easily number of looks, uh, timing to the plate, the pitches that are going to be thrown um, because they're, they're basically inhibiting the pitcher and the catcher, that relationship by calling everything. So, but at, ironically, they made base stealing, they had to increase the base size for base stealing to improve. So, uh, base, base, baseball it befuddles me more often than not. So I, uh, I'm not sure I, 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 I get that, uh, what they did, but, um, you, you sent me a nice, or do, do you want to respond to that or do you want to move on to? Well, yeah, I, I think too, that, uh, now you, you can only, once you throw over the second time, you can't go over there anymore and you can't disengage yourself from the mound. Yeah. It's a bummer. See, and I, I think that that's starting to mess with the integrity of the game because that was part of my game. I mean, if I if I came set and the guy had a big lead and I stepped off, while he's going back on, I would step right back on the rubber, and if the hitter didn't step out of the box, I'd deliver the ball home. Uh, so you kind of mess with the timing there. Yeah. And they've, they've taken a lot of that away. And then I remember when Tony La Russa started – uh, calling the throwovers from the bench, so you'd look at the catcher and he'd look in the he'd look in the dugout and then he'd give the pitcher and and I I'm not going to argue with Tony he's a good friend respect him as a manager but if I'm on the mound and I'm the pitcher I controlled when I threw over there when I didn't I knew who the base runner was I know how big a lead he was I don't want to be waiting for the guy in the dugout to tell me to throw over to first base or yeah. to throw home. That, that, that really disrupts my flow of being in the game. I, I mean, they have to give, if you've done your homework, you have to give your pitcher and catcher enough credit that, you know, now unless there's, unless they're picking up a sign, you know, if all of a sudden they said, oh, we, we, we've picked up like Tony Taylor, who was a teammate of mine with the Phillies, he was very good at picking up pitcher signs, and he would look at the third base coach, and he could, he, after a while, he might be able to pick up their steal sign. Well, now, if you have something like that, that's a whole different ballgame, because uh, mm -hmm. then you, obviously, you take advantage of, uh, of, of what they, if they say, well, this guy's going on this pitch. I never... Uh, I never liked to throw to first base. And if we thought he was going, my catcher and I would each have a little signal for a pitch out because that's the ideal time to pitch out. I don't think they even pitch out anymore. I don't know the last time I've seen a pitch out. I take that back. There was supposed to be one the other night. And Josh, either Josh Naylor or Bo Naylor for the Cleveland team, the tribe. Oh, yeah. Opinion. Yeah. I was watching that. And he had to dive back in because the pitcher threw it over the plate. And he still got the guy at second. That was incredible. Yeah, he had to reverse pivot on it, and he uh, he nailed yeah. it at second. But you really don't see. I don't. I, I don't watch much of the games. I follow them, but I don't think you see as many 
uh, pitch outs as you did years ago. No, not when you had Henderson and Reigns and Vince Coleman. and Right. I mean, those guys could run. And that that's the part that bothers me because I grew up – that was the year I grew up watching. And yeah. those guys were base stealers, and, and there were great ones before them. But you're talking guys that would that would swipe 80 bags on a bad, bad year. Yeah. And, that was another thing that I that I got in a habit of doing is when when the catcher would call for a pitch out and I put all my trust in like Earl Batty and Johnny Roseboro, if they kind of they're seeing the whole view from behind the plate. So all of a sudden if they think he's stealing and they give me the pitch out, I throw to first base because I don't waste a pitch home. And if they think he's going and he tries to get an early break, well, I might be able to pick him off. Yeah. No, that's a fair point. And here I am. I'm going to ask another selfish question. I'm a player. I'm a pitcher in the clubhouse. I cornered you. Um, you took a wrong turn at Albuquerque, ended up in the clubhouse, and there I am. And I, what, what kind of things did you look at from a base runner, let's say from a standpoint, looking at a base runner at first base, that clued you in that he may be going a lean, an open toe, I mean, different stance. What were some things that you picked out? And I'm sure it was different with different guys, but – yeah, well, you know how they used to cut the cut the infield. They cut that little semicircle. Yeah, and then uh, now I think they varied in a lot of stadiums. But it it was for me if the base runner got beyond where that cutout was, that meant he he might have a pretty good idea of trying to go. The other thing, I think it was Ricky that did this. But when guys took a lead and they had their arms dangling down there when they wiggle their fingers, you know, they wiggle their fingers yeah. and some guys would tip out that that's when they're going, you know, you, you pick up little, uh, little things like that only from playing against guys, you know, time after time, you, you don't necessarily do that. The, you know, the first time you see them. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I enjoy that cat and mouse too with the, with the base runner and the pitcher. So, um, you know, that, that those are the type of things that you could contribute um, and plus, plus many more things. If called upon, uh, you sent you sent me an article, and I, I was I was able to read through it, and it was on. We're, we're jumping to hitting now, uh, with with uh, with our. I think he was at Statcast at one time. Enos Saris had an article on hitting uh, that that kind of struck you. What what was so uh, what, what caught your eye in that article? Well, yeah, it was Eno Eno Saris. I haven't heard back from him, but I did write him a uh, sent him an email. Uh, telling him what an interesting article I thought it was, but he was talking about how the launch angle is starting to kind of go away. I guess Carlos Correa's two-strike approach would be an indication of that. Uh, they're starting to, more guys are starting to try to put the ball in play, hit it to the whole field. But I saw uh, Yogi Berra's film, It Ain't Over Till It's Over, and when you see Yogi swing, his swing is like uh, – level. It's like the ball is on a three foot tee and his his swing is on that plane. There's no there's no effort whatsoever to hit the ball up in the air. Uh yet in nineteen fifty he hit twenty eight home runs and struck out twelve times. And then you saw batting practice. There was a batting practice video on Instagram and it was kind of cool. You had Babe Ruth in the box and he's swinging every swing's a level swing. He gets out and he hands the bat to Gehrig, so they're using the same bat. And it's probably weighs 40 ounces, who knows, because I've held uh, Babe's bat in the Hall of Fame, and it's it's a heavy bat. But their their swing was so level, and it goes back to what uh, we didn't we didn't have a hitting coach in the big leagues my first few years. We had veteran hitters like Jim Lemon, who would always say, kid, uh, keep the barrel of the bat above the flight of the ball. Take a wide stance, take a short stride, swing the bat like a hammer, not like a broom. You know, he had all those little sayings like that. And uh, so our deal was, you know, you actually swung. Well, if the bat's on your shoulder and the ball is down around the thighs, you have to swing down unless you drop the barrel way down and then try to swing up. And that's probably why you're going to strike out 200 times and hit 210. Yeah. No, it's that's that's I think that's. The way to go, you got to have bat head above hands, bat head above the ball, the direct path yeah. to the ball. I think people misinterpret. So I hear people try to um, conjure Ted Williams. And I, that was the very first hitting book I got when I was a kid. 
I carried it with me all the time. I still have my original copy of it. Yeah, my, my son looks through it. My, both my boys look through it quite a bit. But, you know, he always promoted that slight upswing. But they, two things with it. One, before he got to that, the, the, the upswing, really he was putting the bat on level plane with the ball. Um, he wasn't swinging up at that little uh, launch angle craziness they have. And the second thing I always remind people is he was Ted Williams. He swung with an open toe, which nobody does. Um, he was a dead pull guy, which nobody promotes. And he could do things a little differently than others. So um, they, they often miss those points. I want to battle back with Ted Williams did it this way. And I have to, as nice as I can, I, I'm, I've got, I'm from New York, so I can only be so nice so long. But um, the, whoever's talking to me is just not Ted Williams. So they're, they're, yeah. not, they're not. The and, you know, they had that, that cover, cover on Sports Illustrated, which was just eye candy. They had those different colored baseballs that, well, you hit 388 when the ball was. I mean, nobody nobody is that good that they know exactly where that ball was within the 17-inch plate. I mean, you estimate it was lowered away, it was lowered in. And and as you mentioned, they didn't have video in those days. We, I find that out in golf, too. Some of the old teachers, uh, you look at – even Ben Hogan, if Ben Hogan said, this is what I did, but now all of a sudden with high-speed video, they're finding out, well, no, he really didn't do exactly what he thought he did. Right. And it would be that way with Ted Williams. You say, well, you know, I had a little bit of an upswing. Sure, you did at the right point, but eventually you had to swing down before the before the arc started going back up. Yeah, it's a pendulum. He even says it in the book, so there's, you know, but again, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. We've got... Uh, he was... Uh, he he was in the, and the pitchers back, uh, the hitters back then they were they were they popped their hips you know Harry Walker's old line uh, pop and glide pop and glide see the ball before you stride if you're having trouble with the bat come and see Harry the hat <laughs> he's the one that was uh, Matty Alou's coach but okay. you know it was a level swing and they used their hips whereas now they all start with their upper body and that's why we're seeing guys get hit in the hands and having uh, broken bones in the wrists and so forth. Cause their hands are exposed. They never keep them back, you know, behind that trail shoulder like hitters did years ago. Yeah. They open up early. And the, the ironic part about it is the claim is science. And, you know, if you talk to anybody with pitching or hitting that knows anything about biomechanics, they'll talk about the kinetic chain, that your body moves a certain way to get to a certain point of power. And what they're promoting is the exact opposite of that. Um, right. And it's dangerous. I mean, you're opening, you're exposing your, one of the very first things we teach the little kids when we start working is, and they're all afraid of the ball. And you teach them, okay, we're going to teach you how to get hit by a pitch here the proper way. And the first thing you teach them is with a wiffle ball, of course. So I, by listening, please don't whip a hard ball at a little kid. But, uh, that slight inward turn with the front shoulder and the hip. So yeah. that way you're taking it off the meat, but it it's also promotes good hitting mechanics in that regard. Yeah, now, were you were you familiar with, uh, I know Conseco was one of the first ones that had the Hammett bone uh, fracture. And now Mike Trout, of course, is going to miss quite a bit of time. And I remember that started because hitters were hitting with like their pinky off the knob of the bat. Yeah, I I, uh, I never did that. I always choked a little bit, actually. Sure, but, but that's that you've heard of that, and that's why it happens. Okay. I think is that yeah, and I'm just thinking with with today's technology, whether it's in making a bat or whatever, why couldn't they construct a bat so they didn't have to lap that pinky over the knob of the bat to gain a little extra lot uh, leverage? And then you're missing uh, six to eight weeks because of that Hammett bone. Yeah, and I didn't even I didn't even realize that that was uh, the reason why, or could be the reason why. But it's it's prevalent. You see a lot of guys doing that, and I again, my, I didn't swing the bat hard enough for it to make a difference. Um, you know, my negative launch angle, and God knows what my exit velocity was. Um, yeah, I don't think they measured. Yeah, Rod Carew didn't know what his was either. No, the wind would have blown mine back. I put it on the ground, let it do a little pinball action out there. But yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up. I'll have to look at that because I see it a lot, not just with the, obviously the young kids emulate the pros, but I do see a lot of young kids doing that as well. They don't know why they're doing it. They're doing it because it looks cool on TV. Uh, yeah. But I'm going to take a look at my guys anyway, make sure they're not doing it. I don't need that, that injury. But um, well, we're, we're coming up on 
well, not quite an hour, but close to it. But I want to get your take on the the draft. Uh, you know, major reduction, obviously, in the draft over the last few years. We're down to twenty rounds now. Um, you know, at one point in time, I again, uh, Stan Meek was on earlier today, and he talked about the one draft. There was eighty some odd rounds. I don't remember that. That's that's well before my time. But uh, but down to twenty rounds, they've reduced the number of minor league teams. So less opportunities for guys to develop, um, you know, and that's the, I guess the, the negative on it, but drafts coming up uh, at, on the ninth. What, what's your thoughts on the draft, the way it goes, uh, your history with it? I mean, you could take it any direction. Well, I've, I've always, I've always felt, you know, and I'm, I'm so far, uh, you know, out of the mainstream with the way they do things and, and think, and I'm a, you know, I'm a party of one. <laughs> I don't expect people to agree with me, but, I've always felt the draft was unfair and unconstitutional. Uh, I like the days uh, when I came up and a scout would have to beat the bushes and find out a talent. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they say the rich, you know, the rich uh, teams would get all the talent. That's not necessarily true. But the other thing that I've seen during my days working the College World Series is what pressure it puts on kids. And not only pressure, but it all of a sudden builds their ego. I mean, I've talked to Phil Nevin, who's now managing the Angels. And Phil Nevin was the only player that won the MVP on a losing team with the College World Series, Cal State Fullerton. That was the same draft year as Derek Jeter. And he was all pumped up, you know, and, hey, this guy's going to be the number one draft pick. Of course, Hal Newhouser, the scout for the uh, Astros, I think he – he quit his job because he had highly recommended that they pick Jeter, but they didn't. And they picked Phil Nevin and Jeter went six, but it, it just, a, a player gets there and all of a sudden there's these high expectations. And uh, I just, I just think it's unfair. I remember when Todd Van Poppel was going to be the next Nolan Ryan. You remember that name? Oh, I do. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so Scott Boris had, in his contract that he had to be elevated to the major league roster uh, after like one season or something. So now he would get the major league minimum. Well, Todd Van Poppel never developed into the pitcher that he could have been because of the, you know, the power the agents had with that draft. And uh, I, I just, I would rather see, you know, it's open market. You hire, and that's what the Twins did for years. The Twins always had a great scouting department. As tight as Calvin Griffith was, he took good care of his scouts. And he had a great scouting department. Uh, I remember when Dick Winsick, who signed me, signed Jack Kralik and Dan Dobeck, all three from Michigan. And, and uh, within three years, we were all in the big league. So, you know, he he was well rewarded for his scouting ability. And I'd, I'd rather see that nowadays. Of course, you can, you can scout uh, players as you, as you probably know, you can scout them uh, with a DVD. Yeah. Uh, you don't always have to see them all in person, but I just think the draft, you know, they're, they're giving these kids a ton of money before they've ever proven that they can even play uh, in the big leagues. Uh, and then, you know, when they when they do get there, the expectations immediately are so high. Uh, I guess the reason I think that way is because I, I probably have told you the story I mentioned in my induction speech last year is that uh, in 1957, uh, the Washington Senators offered me $4,000 to go to the Rookie League in Nebraska and before I signed, she, uh, Pete Melito, the scout from the White Sox, called my dad and said, we heard your son's going to sign. I think uh, we could get him $25,000 from the White Sox. My dad made $72 a week. My dad had followed the plight, even Sandy Koufax, who for four years, his record was 36 and 40 because he had to start on the, in the big league roster. And then he developed into the pitcher he was. But my dad followed many of those players that got $25,000, $35,000 up front. They had to go to the big leagues, sit on the roster. They never developed into their full potential. So he said to Pete, thank you, but Jim's going to take the four, and he's going to the minor leagues, and he's going to learn his craft. 
And so that was one of the biggest decisions that I think enabled me, you know, to be a big league pitcher because I went down there. I got knocked around a bit. I had a few good games, but I kind of learned how to be a professional pitcher from the bottom up and starting instead of starting at the top and getting disappointed and then having that long drop down. Yeah. So that, that even existed back, back then, I guess psychologists would call that sunk cost fallacy where you, you spend money on something and you just keep convincing yourself that it's the, it's the thing and you've got to wear it, you've got to have it, you got to drive it. And in the case of a pitcher, you got to pitch them. And, uh, I just I find that the, the point that I hope our audience gets to is, and this goes with every walk of life in baseball. There's such an inertia for immediate success right now that um, I think we often disregard development, as you as you so eloquently put it, and and that's hurting young kids, draftees, you name it. It's it, and guys yeah. that are in the current system. So point point. Yeah, the old saying: you can't rush a masterpiece. That's right. You know, I remember when I signed, it was a deal. Well, you know, if you can if you can get there in four years, you know, you're in the lower minors and you hope you move up. When I played, it was D, C, B, A, double A, triple A. And you hope you move up a little, but you it was a gradual learning curve. Yeah. And you, you have your standouts like Ken Griffey Jr., who you could probably tell when he was 17, he's going to be a big league star. But, you know, those are few and far between. There's so many capable kids that don't throw 95 miles an hour that if given the chance to go to the minor leagues and develop and learn how to be a professional that could be big league pitchers that will never get the chance because now with the draft and the radar gun they won't even get drafted if they don't throw at a certain velocity yeah no it's that that polarizing misinformation you talked about that embodies baseball as well as our, you know, our political, uh, political realm. And that's, that's part of it, that velocity rules the roost, I think. But you, you mentioned you you'd be a, a party of one, every scout that we've had on. And again, it's, it's, it's of a similar generation, albeit, uh, but every scout that we've had on wishes it was like it used to be where scouts had to beat the bush bushes yeah. to, uh, to find it because that was fun. That was, that, that was your craft. That was what separated sure. people. So, but uh, I love the, the draft is very, unde- uh, is, is not democratic. Now they do with the international game too, right? They, they do the, yeah, for that. right. Well, I hope they, I hope, well, we're going to keep banging the drum. You got a party of two, at least you and I, so we'll, we'll bring okay, more. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, what did you want to leave the audience with today? A lot of great information. I'm glad to have you back. Um, Miss chatting with you. Well, I think the all the All Star Game. It's good. It's good for fans. You know, I don't, I won't watch it. It's not the All Star Game that it was back when I played. When it was real competition between the American and National League. Each league had a president, and they, you know, it was a sense of pride. I remember Joe Cronin was furious when we lost the '66 All Star Game two to one, and it was about 110 degrees. And uh, Sam Bealey, the manager, took Frank Robinson out of the lineup after eight innings because it was so hot. He would have come up in the 10th, <laughs> and he didn't. So that's how competitive that game was then. Now it's, hey, fly in on your private jet, uh, have your family there, take a lot of pictures, look at the home run derby, get one at bat, and you're landing back in your home city before the game's even over. Yeah. Now, I know it's it's part of its culture, but did interleague play? Does that weigh in at all as far as taking the competitive competitiveness out of it? Oh, I think so. Yeah, because we we didn't have interleague play then. So that I mean, the first time on the '66 All Star Game, I faced Clemente, Mays, McCovey, Aaron. I mean, I'd never seen those guys in person, so that was not only a big thrill for me, but that was I think kind of fun for the fans to say now these two leagues are going to compete against one another. Uh, and that doesn't happen anymore because interleague play and then free agency guys are switching teams so much more often than they did years ago. Yeah. No, those are all great, great points. Well, great show today, Jim. Glad to have you back here as star of your show, Cots Corner, the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. And then um, we'll be back with you guys next week. Um, we'll get the, the time in the date out there to our audience and to our audience. Uh, thank you guys. I think this show will probably be the one that puts us over the 20,000 
subscriber mark that we've been pushing for the last week. It's all because you're, you're doing what I asked, download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. And that gets us the opportunity to give you great content every week like, like Jim does on the show. And whatever country you live in, we're glad to have you. 72 right now. Uh, hopefully that we're representing everybody well. And coming off our Independence Day, of course, we want to represent our, our states in the U.S. very well also. So, Jim, thanks again for a great show today. Great information. Audience got a ton out of it. I know I got smarter and I love when that happens. Dave, I enjoyed it as I always do. All right, audience, have a great day and we'll catch you next week.